0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Crazy. <clears throat> I was picking Rowan up from school, and we're driving home, and he says, uh, Daddy, uh, so-and-so said master at school today. Okay. He says, master's a bad word, right, Daddy? Now, if you remember, we had to teach him that master was a bad word because he was saying it to us, and uh, that was not going well. Um, so, especially in public, I was like, this is not, mm, this is not good. So, we kind of told him, like, don't say that word. So, I'm like, no, well, listen, okay, but I need you to understand. Like, master's not a bad word. You don't need to freak out when somebody else says it or react when someone else says it. Most of the time, it's harmless. It's, it's a very common word. It's okay to use. Just, you should never say it. <laughs> Why? Oh, <laughs> All right, so I'm like, this is a conversation I'm not ready to have. Like, my social studies class did not prepare me for this. So I'm like, all right, listen, okay, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to be a good dad here. i got to prepare him for this. So I'm going to lean in to the discomfort. And I'm like, all right, bud, let me just tell you this. Okay, so not as long ago as I would like, in our history, there were some white people that thought it was okay to own black people, and they were called slaves, and the white people that did this were called masters. It was not good. It was not okay. It's a real problem, Uh, but uh, that word was used negatively in that context, so like when you, as our black son, say to your white parents, master, it kind of means something you don't think, and it's not good for us, so just you don't know when it's okay and not to say or what it is, so just You never say it, okay? It's a bad word for you. Don't worry about it when anybody else says. If they say it, it's fine. But just you never say it. He goes, okay, Daddy, I understand. I'm feeling good now, okay? Like, I'm parenting really well. I'm not hiding from the discomfort or the hard conversations. I'm like, I'm prepping this little man to be ready for the world. And then he just goes, Daddy, I'm like, yeah, bud. He goes, so only white people can say it? (laughs) All right, he's four, right. I was prepared for this conversation when he turned 12. I'm like, when he turns 12, he's going to start playing that card, like, go to your room. Because I'm black? No. Just because, like, don't. Stop it. Like, so I was ready, like, eight years from now. Four was not ready. I about drove off the road. I didn't know how to respond to that. So I'm like, I just lost the conversation with a four-year-old. That makes me feel real good about my intelligence. Because <laughs> kids are crazy. <laughs> All right? What What'd you guys talk about at church today? they Slavery? All right, it's gonna get look. It's gonna get weird. You had to know. Conveniently, Rick is out of town, of course. So um, we're gonna. It will make sense in a minute. We'll get to that. If you got a Bible or a Bible app, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse one. Uh, this is. Uh, As we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians for about three months, we're on the last chapter now, two more weeks, and then we'll conclude our study. Uh, But Ephesians is divided essentially into two key parts. The first part is about our identity. It's who you are in Christ, that you are a child of God, that this is the foundation and the function of who and what you are, that everything you do flows out of this. And so the first half is really devoted to helping you understand who you are in Jesus bought through the blood of Jesus, adopted into the family of God, and being sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. The second half of the book shifts gears for not who you are, but for what that looks like. As a new creation in Jesus, as a child of God, this is how your life is going to be different. This is how your relationships are going to be different. Everything is going to be different because of Jesus and your relationship with him. And so last week, we talked about husbands and wives. I used the word submit. Nobody threw anything at me. So that's uh, an unmitigated success, <laughs> this week we're going to start off looking at the relationship of parents and children. Okay, it's easy for us to then go, okay, well, if I don't have kids right now or I'm not going to have kids or whatever, it's easy to kind of dismiss and think this maybe doesn't apply to you. Well, here's the deal. There's two types of parenting. There's physical parenting there's spiritual parenting. We're all called to be disciples, to make disciples of people, to raise up uh, spiritual adults as well. So, this is, this is for all of us, even if you don't presently have children in your home or anything like that. So, don't dismiss this too quickly. Uh, but for those of us who are parents too, like, right, being a parent is scary, right? Like, you kind of, you settle into it after a minute, but like, especially when you make that transition from not being a parent to being a parent, like, that's, that's hard, right? Because you go to the hospital, right, and they give you this little person that looks kind of like an alien at the moment, right? And you're like holding them, and they're like, okay, I don't know what to do with this, but you're surrounded by medical professionals. So you're like, okay, this is the place to be to have no idea what's going on. But then like 10 minutes later, they're like, okay, you're good. You're discharged. Take your baby and go. You're like, do you you have like a manual or something? Like, no, there's no manual. Like, wait a minute, hold on. (laughs) This is a human baby, right? You're telling me that we have multiple step instructions for Pop-Tarts? Right, and it's not just toast pop tart, eat pop tart. There's multiple layers of instructions to help us not mess that up. But a human life is like, nah, good luck. Not even a pamphlet, nothing. They're like, nah, you'll be fine, just don't shake it. Oh, good Lord, I hadn't even thought of that yet. Oh, right, like it's scary to be a parent. It freaks you out, especially the responsibility of raising a little human into a non-Hitler human is really terrifying. That example went really extreme. Uh, okay, so let's put the wheels back on the track. <laughs> Raising a godly child, however, is even more intimidating. Because now it's not just like, okay, i got to make sure that they're fed and that they live. I need to make sure that they live well and grow up well. and That's a lot of pressure. But thankfully, unlike the hospital, Jesus does provide us with some guidelines for how to do that. Uh, so hospital zero, Jesus one. That's nothing against hospitals. That's not a slam on, on any of that. Don't, I'm going to get myself in trouble. All right. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is a reference to Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number 5 is the first one that has a promise, that it may go well for you and that you may live long in the land. Okay. So the Bible says, children, obey your parents. And all God's parents said, Amen. Amen. Right? So now when you parent your kids, you're like, this is what I say. You got to listen to me because the Bible says, right, God says you got to do what I say or I get to bop you with this book. It's big. So you better listen up. This is what's called the natural law. Natural law describes things that are essentially just kind of hardwired into who we are as people. So, if you go back and you look through history at all the different societies and cultures, there's several things you're going to see that basically everybody just agrees on. That's called the natural law. It's just something innate in us that we understand. This is right. This is wrong. This is how it should be. Children obeying their parents is one of those things. It's part of the natural law. But there are two elements to this command. There's obey and honor. The word obey here means to listen under. Literally, it carries the idea of to listen with the intention of understanding. All right. so this is not like listening like a lawyer. Where like, I'm looking for the loophole. I'm looking for, like, the technicality. This is what I did when I was a kid. Like, my mom would say, don't eat all the cherries. i am like, okay, I didn't eat all the cherries. I ate all but two. How do you like me now? And then, I, you know, I got super sick off of that. So, uh, it's not that. It's not looking for how do I technically work my way around the instruction. It is listening with the, of under, with the intent of understanding the heart of the command, not just the words of the command, and then obeying that instruction. This is where a lot of times the, the modern church struggles. Right? We don't discipline and train ourselves to know the word very effectively. We don't know it. We don't understand it. And if you don't know the instruction, you don't understand the instruction, it's very difficult to obey the instruction. And so when we don't have a strong basis on God's word, we tend to be guided by whatever kind of feels right, and that never goes well. So the first part is to obey, and that is to seek to understand. And this is true not just, again, for our, for our kids with us, like, hey, you need to try to understand what I'm telling you. Remember, we're all children of God. This is an attitude being pushed towards him, too. We should listen to God with the intention not on technically following the words that are on the page of the Bible, but striving to understand the intention in the heart of what God is training and preparing us to do. That's obey. Honor takes it a step further. See, so obey is an external action. It's to do as you're told. To honor is an internal attitude. It is to esteem highly. It is to view well, to honor, and it's to respect and revere the person, or at least the position of authority that they are in. It starts in the heart and then flows out. Now, this command, as all all the commands in these relational things are noted as a conditional command, that is, in the Lord. What that means is that a child's responsibility to honor and obey their parents is limited to their parents not contradicting or going against Jesus and his word. So when you take your kid out to dinner, right, and little Timmy, who's your little pride and joy, just such a sweet kid. We all love little Timmy. And you say, hey, little Timmy, do want to tell the server that it's your birthday so that you can get a free dessert. And little Timmy says, yeah, but it's not my birthday. He goes, I know, but we didn't come here for your birthday, so we're just going to do that. We're going to say it's your birthday, and that way you get a free... Listen, just don't argue with me. I'm the parent. You need to just do what I say. And little Timmy's like, no, that's not, that's not right. Little Timmy's right. Your instruction is not in line with Jesus' instruction, and so they are biblically in the right to disobey you in that particular instance. So listen to Timmy. Timmy's doing the right thing. Okay. Okay. Um, As children of God, but this again reflects us, not just for our kids, but for how we respond to Jesus, to listen and to understand, but to honor him, right? We're not just dutifully obeying because if we don't, he's going to smite us like Zeus with a thunderbolt. We're respecting and honoring God in our hearts, viewing him with reverence and honor because we are his children Then it shifts from the kid to the parent, verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's written specifically notes, fathers, this is for all parents in how you raise your children. Don't provoke them to anger, right? A lot of times as parents, we have this tension or pressure that we feel to try to make sure our kids grow up right and grow up well and are adjusted and prepared for the world. And sometimes with good intentions, we exert a little bit too much control over them. We trying to rule over our kids with an iron fist. And so what the Bible makes very clear here is that God doesn't just have us raise children, doesn't just entrust us with children, but he also has expectations for what we do with that and how we go about it. And so there are three things that we're told that we should do. One thing we're told not to do, do not provoke your children to anger. Well, you know what? My four-year-old wanted chocolate cake at 10 o'clock last night. I told him no. He screamed. He got mad. Was that my fault? I've provoked him to anger? No. Think of provoking to anger as giving reasonable cause for resentment. Okay? So I want you to think back to your own childhood and your relationship with your parents, right? Some of us had good relationships. Some of us had bad relationships. And there's kind of everything in between. But everybody, like, had parents, right? Like, nobody, nobody sprouted out of the ground in the woods like, eh, what's this place? Right? So we all have parents, right? We all have some issues with that, right? Even if you had great parents and you love and respect them, most of us can think of something, Right? that our parents did, that kind of bothered us, that we kind of resented later, that we didn't really, we're not happy about, may not be a big thing, but we've got some things, like if I was my parent, I would do this differently. Yeah. Giving your kids reasonable cause for resentment. Some of those things are obvious. Any form of abuse, any form of neglect, being absent from their life gives them cause. Some of them are a little bit more subtle things that we do without even necessarily realizing uh, that we're doing it. So i got five of those. Number first is being, number first, number first, we're good at words. Yeah, I talk for a living. Uh, I've been doing it since I was a kid and still not good at it. Okay, so number one, right, being unreasonable. Are the instructions that you are giving or the expectations that you're placing on your children reasonable for their developmental level? If you're asking them to build you a functional rocket ship, and they're three, probably not. Okay, sometimes as parents, we expect more than is reasonable to ask of our kids. One of my favorite ways we do this, and let me just be clear, I've practiced this out loud, so I've preached this part to myself, I'm still feeling it. So if you're like, man, that was (laughs) hard. I know, this one hurt me too. (laughs) We demand respect from our children, expecting they're going to give it to us. But do we offer respect to our children? Respect our kids. What kind of hippy-dippy thing is that? Listen, where do you think your kids are going to learn how to operate with respect if you, as their parents, don't show them what it looks like? How you think they're just magically pull it out of the ether? Oh, this is respect. Got it. Here you go, and you're like, good. Now I'll stop yelling at you. But what happens? Here's one of my favorite ways that this expresses itself. Right, your kid comes to you. They want your attention, and you say, "Wait, I'm in the middle of something. You need to be quiet. You need to wait until I'm done. You got to finish your task, finish your conversation, complete what you're doing," and you expect them to stand and wait until you are ready, and then you go, okay, now you can talk to me. And if they don't, you get frustrated because they're interrupting. They're not respecting your boundaries. They're being rude to you and what you're wanting to do, right? We, that happens because kids just, they don't always get it. They just come, hey, mommy, daddy. He's like, just give me a second. But what happens on the other side of that? When we want our kids' attention, what do we expect? They're going to immediately going to stop what they're doing in the middle of the task, put down their toys, put down whatever it is, project that they're working on. They're going to stop. They're going to look at us and give us their undivided attention. Where do you think they're going to learn how to do that? If you don't demonstrate, this is the most frustrating thing about children. They are mirrors of how you treat them. What you get from them is a reflection of what you give to them. So if you don't stop what you're doing when they come looking for your attention, why do you think that they're going to immediately stop what they're doing when you look for theirs? It is unreasonable to expect them to be able to do that. Because you're asking for something that you've never demonstrated to them. They've never seen how. Number two is always finding fault. If your child never feels like what they do is good enough, there is a problem, and that problem is not with them. We have a responsibility in how we raise our kids, and there's a pressure in that. But sometimes we do so by focusing on the negative by acting like their coach and watching tape back. and be like, okay, see what you did wrong there? Oh, okay, let's go back to this. You see what you did wrong there? That's not effective for them. All that does is tear them down. Your child needs a place that is secure and safe, where they feel accepted and loved, where they can grow on a strong and firm foundation. If that's not with you, where are they going to get it? Right? So if all we're doing is finding fault, all we're doing is tacking them, complaining about them, criticizing them, where are they ever going to develop the confidence to do or try anything in their life? They will resent that later. Number three is pushing them too hard. I get it. We all have dreams. We all have things that we want for our kids. We want them to do well and to excel and to be great at stuff. But sometimes the question is like, are you pushing them for them or are you pushing them for you? Right? Are you pushing your kids so that they can reach their dreams? Or are you pushing them because you're trying to live vicariously through them and you want them to reach your dreams? What's your motivation for pressing What's your motivation for pushing them to go beyond what they're doing? Is it them and their good or is it you and your desire? Number four is hypocrisy. The most socially acceptable form of a double standard that exists comes from parenting. Right? We've all heard it, right? Do as I say, not as I do. That is not godly. That is not biblical. This is bad. It's just it's straight up awful. Because it's hypocrisy. So we tell our kids to do one thing, we do another, and they're supposed to just figure it out. We're commanding our children, dictating to our children, and then they're going like, I don't get, you're telling me this, but then I'm doing this, I don't, I need to see it. When you behave one way and expect them to do something else, when, again, where do they learn how to do that? Your job is to be their example. It is not to dictate to them. It is to demonstrate for them that they can see how to follow, how to live, and what is expected. And lastly is pride. Parental pride expresses itself in a lot of ugly ways. Uh, One of the primary ones is that we give instructions but not explanations. Here's what I want you to do. Just do it. I'm the parent. You need to just listen to me. Now, again, sometimes it's not appropriate or it's not the right time to explain why you're giving instruction. There does, there does need to be that aspect of the relationship where you can say, look, we'll talk about that later. Right now, you just need to do what I say. Absolutely. But do you go back and explain it later? Do you help them understand? Is that always the reason that you don't want them to ask why and you don't want to answer the question? You just want them to do what you say? Is it because it's not appropriate to talk about it then or is it because it's easier to just tell them to do what you say? Commanding is easier than instruction. And a lot of times, the reasons we don't explain to our children what we're asking them to do is because we're lazy. We don't want to do the extra work. We are not called to command our children. We're called to instruct our children. Commanding is do this. Instructing is here's why I want you to do this. Why? Because I'm your parent. I told you so, right? Because I'm right. I know better. Really? Like, as the parent, you know better, like, all the time? Like, you're batting a 1,000 in their offer? Like, that's how this thing's going? Never once missed the mark, never once been off, not once been wrong? Come on. Like, we don't. We're not always right. Yeah, when they're really little, probably. Like, they're like, I want to eat cake and then juggle steak knives. And you're like, no, you're probably right on that one. (laughs) But as they get older, they're going to start accidentally getting some of those things right. Well, then, we, then that parental pride doubles down for us. Well, well, I can't admit that I was wrong. I can't apologize to my kids. I can't ask for their forgiveness because that will undermine my authority. <laughs> Does it? Really? Okay, so my parents came to visit about a few months ago for Rowan's birthday. My dad, Rowan, and I are outside. We just ate dinner. It's dark out. Uh, and so he's looking up at the sky, and he goes, Rowan, look, there's Venus. And Rowan goes, no, Papa, that's Jupiter. Venus is down there. Where my kid would learn, I didn't even know that those were names of planets. And so he's like, So I don't know how he turned into a little astrologer. My dad, who's a scientist, I'm just like, I would never question my Like, he just questioned my dad. Like, how could you not allow to do that? I didn't think you were supposed to. I'm like, it's not good. I'm going to get in trouble for my kid. My dad pulls out his phone. He's got a Stargazer app because why not? Looks it up and goes, Huh, look at that. You're right. 38 years. I've wanted to hear those words from my dad. Okay? 38 years. I've been waiting. And I'm like, I don't even care what's for. Just ask me my name, and then I'll tell it to you. And then you can be like, hey, you're right. It doesn't have to be worth it, anything. Just say the words to me. Nothing. Rowan's four. He's got one in the bank. <laughs> look, Are you kidding me? And I promise. Look, here's the thing. We tell ourselves, because pride tells us, no, if you do that, you're going to undermine your authority. Your kids aren't going to listen to you more. I will promise you this. I fought with my parents so much more because they didn't acknowledge I was right. Because I knew it. There were times I knew I wasn't right a lot or often, maybe just like once every out of a thousand, but I'm like, there's no way. Just law of averages. There's no way I'm always wrong. And I need you to tell me when I'm right so that I can learn to start guiding myself through this process. I want to know what it feels like to make the basket. I fought with them so much harder because they didn't. Now, I'm obnoxious. I hope nobody has kids that were like me. That's not something I would wish on anyone, but... The thing that we're afraid of, we're actually creating. Because when you apologize to your children, when you ask for their forgiveness, when you admit that you're wrong, you're not jeopardizing your authority. You're teaching them humility. You're teaching them how to own and acknowledge their own mistakes, how to respond and react in their own imperfections. And that is the best way we grow, by acknowledging it and moving forward through it. Don't dictate it. Demonstrate it. So what we're called to not do, provoke our children to anger. Three things we're called to do. Number one, grow them up, raise them up. This means to nurture. It is to cultivate with gentleness and care. Number two, you discipline them. All godly parenting requires discipline. Now, as parents, sometimes we get a little judgy at other parents using different methods than we do. That's not okay, right? Every kid is different. Every relationship is different. We should be really slow to judge other people's discipline methods. Like when I was a kid, I was spanked, okay? As a result, I developed a psychological condition. It's called respect for others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... I'm not advocating that you need to do that. That's the way that it has to be done, the right way, the only way. Absolutely not. There are lots of different ways to discipline. The question is, the Bible doesn't say, here's how you have to discipline your kids, other than the whole, like, spare the rod, spoil the child thing. But aside from that, it doesn't say specifically how. It just says that we are called to do it. So much so that the Bible tells us that we should delight and rejoice in being disciplined by God because that is proof that we are his legitimate children and that if he didn't discipline us, we would not be legitimate children. What the Bible says is if you do not discipline your kids, you are treating them like they are not actually your kids. Biblical parenting requires discipline. And thirdly, clear communication. Key word there is clear. The instructions that you give your kids should be Clear. And that goes back to being unreasonable. Is the way or the complexity of what you're instructing your child to do something that they can understand at the development level that they are in? Right? Go clean your room to a three-year-old doesn't know enough of what that means. You need more specificness. You need to be more clear with your instructions. As a parent whether this is a spiritual parent or a physical parent, whether you are building a disciple and raising a disciple to follow after Jesus or you're raising an actual little person, the commission is the same. Don't demand, demonstrate. Be gentle, disciplined, be understanding. But be an example for them to follow. Your job as a parent is not just to tell your kids what to do. It is to show them how to live by modeling it for them. And now we shift gears. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. In The Roman Empire at this time was estimated they had about 60 million slaves, that the population of most major cities like Rome was about a third slaves. The word for bondservant here literally means slave. Oh, so the Bible talks about slaves but doesn't condemn directly slavery? How is that okay? I am so glad you asked. We assume, the nature of the question assumes that slavery in the first century looks like the slavery we are familiar with in our own history. It doesn't. While it is true in the ancient world, there were abuses and mistreatments of slaves by the first century. The Roman Empire had undergone so much reform that mistreatment or abuse of slaves was an extreme outlier. See, we think of, when we think of slavery, is our own history where there's this attitude that if you're a slave, you're not a, a person, you're property. In the first century, you're a person. Slaves were allowed to own property. They could make investments. They could save money. They could purchase themselves out of slavery. Most people were not born into slavery, and 50% of them were, were set free from one form or another before they reached the age of 30. Slaves were not viewed as lower class or lesser human beings. In fact, in many cases, slaves were treated with more honor because in the first century, a slave was viewed as an extension of their master. And so the honor and respect that a slave would receive was the same as they would be given to the master that they served. And so a lot of people actually sold themselves into slavery because they got less respect and honor as a free person than they did as a slave to a noble or a noteworthy person. It also increased in many cases the quality of their life and allowed them to better provide for their family. Commonly, people would sell themselves into slavery because it would allow them to receive Roman citizenship, which was extremely coveted, and that's something they could give down to their children and pass on. So this was not the same thing that we tend to picture. It was very, very different. And what is truly just sad and shameful is that slavery in the first century was infinitely more humane and civilized than in our own recent history. But still, slavery is bad. It should just be condemned and done away with. And the Bible, why didn't the Bible do that? I'm glad you pressed the issue. Four reasons. Number one, slavery in the first century was not viewed as evil or immoral and ethical in any way by slaves or masters. Both sides didn't have an issue with it. Number two, an attack on slavery would have resulted in not helping the culture but harming the culture as both master and slave in many cases would have been subjected to extreme poverty as a result. And so the action would have distracted from the gospel and actually done harm, not good. Number three, the gospel explicitly notes that all people hold equal value in the eyes of Jesus. So, the Bible makes it very clear and impossible for those who are following Jesus to mistreat or abuse that relationship, which kind of makes the point moot. And number four, most importantly, their version of slavery is very different than our version was. But this word that's used for slave servant was used prior to the establishment of companies, and corporations, and the use of the much more socially acceptable word, employee, which is far more like what's being described here, and the people being described here, than what we think of when we think of slave. So when you hear this word, that the word is slave servant, think of it more as an employee. So if you work at a company, if you work for a boss, if you work for somebody that's not you, this is describing you. So the Bible provides specific instructions For how we are to live as followers of Jesus and how we are to behave at work. Because how you work, your work and your attitude at work, are reflections of Jesus. Even if you don't think that the work that you do matters or is important or meaningful in any way, your job is. Because as a follower of Jesus, your job is not just to go to work, get your paycheck, and go home. You have been given an even higher calling, a greater purpose that you take to that work with you. One of the greatest misconceptions in the modern church is that a missionary is someone who moves from the country they were born into a different country to be a preacher of the gospel to people they've never met. That is a form of missionary. Who is called to missions as a whole? Everybody. That's everybody. Okay? The Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. And surely I will be be with you even to the end of the age. And Luke's version, he says, in Acts 1.8, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Jumeria, Jumeria. Oh, words. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Oh, not my day. <laughs> you will be my witnesses wherever you go. What that tells us is that we are all, as this is called the Great Commission, that we are all called to the mission of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, if you love Jesus, you have been given the mission of Jesus. And your mission is that you have been planted in a mission field that is your neighborhood and your workplace. Whether you're at that workplace for three weeks and it's a short-term mission trip, or you're there for the next 30 years and it's a long-term mission trip, where you are is where God has placed and called you to be a missionary. And you are called to glorify Jesus at your work by being a light that shines in the darkness. And so the Bible gives some specific instructions as to how we go about doing that. The first is to honor and respect your boss or your employee. And it says to do so, to obey them with a sincere heart. That means the attitude has to come internally. Because what happens is you can smile to their face and then talk bad about them at the water cooler when they walk off, right? If you hold on and the attitude in your heart is, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I deserve to be in that position more than you, it doesn't matter how well you try to be respectful, that attitude is like a toxin pouring into your heart, and it will spoil your behavior. So it says, from a sincere heart, you are to treat them with honor and respect, to hold them with honor and respect, because to dishonor your boss or employer is to disgrace Jesus. To disrespect your boss is to disrespect your king who has called you to treat them that way as you would to him. Here and in Colossians 3, we're also told that we are to do everything that we do as if we're working for Jesus and not for men that the person that we do the work for is not the guy who's paying our bills. It's for Jesus. And that is a higher standard and demands a higher work ethic. What it means to work is if you're working for Jesus is that you give your best. You're not phoning it in. You're not running out the clock. You're not doing as little as you can to get the paycheck. It means that you work hard. You provide the best work you can. You take pride in your work and in your attitude at work. And what this looks like ultimately when we are successful at honoring what Jesus tells us to do here in in the workplace is that companies should, who hate God should desire to hire Christians first because the studies and reports that they run should show the impact of having a Christian in the workplace. That is how we should stand out. That is how our work should be different. We should be known for the attitude, for the energy, for the positivity, for the work ethic, the trustworthiness, and the reliability that we bring into the workplace, that even people who hate what we believe want to hire us because they know the quality of work that they're going to get when they do so. That's what success in this looks like. We should be the best employees and the most joyful, positive influence on our workplace. Because we are called to do all that we do. All of our work and our attitude are to be done as if they are being done to Jesus. And then we get to verse 9. Masters do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Again, this is the explicit clarity of the gospel over and over again. makes it clear Jesus does not value some people more than others. And if Jesus does not treat anyone as inferior, what would ever give us the right to act like anyone else is inferior for any reason? So for those who are employers, whether it's you have a company or you are a manager, you have people under you, what you're called to do is don't be harsh, don't be cruel, don't be unfair. You should treat those who are under your authority the way you want to be treated. Well, yeah, okay, but here's the thing. Like, this is just how the the organization works. That's just how the company works. When you're at the bottom of the totem pole, everything kind of falls down on you and you just got to take it. You know, it's part of paying your dues. No. No, as a godly leader, you're not paying it forward. Your job is to treat people the way you wish you'd been treated when you were in their position. Biblical authority is not about commanding. Biblical authority is not about controlling. Biblical authority is not about power. It's about being an example. It's about demonstrating. It's about going first and setting the pace. So if you as a manager or a leader in any area of your life, whether it's work or school or whatever it is, when you are a leader, your job is to set the example. You want respect? Give respect. You want hard work? Demonstrate hard work. You want people to have a positive attitude and to compliment one another then have a positive attitude and compliment people. You set the standard. You create the culture. You demonstrate what you want to see. That's what biblical leadership looks like. Because in all things, in every relationship what we see is all biblical relationships are built around the concept of mutual Submission. Church, Christianity is not just a faith that we believe. Here's what I hold true in my heart, and that's, that's it. Christianity is a lifestyle that redefines who you are, that recalibrates the attitude and the affections of your heart. It doesn't make you different. It makes you new. Your relationship with Jesus should change every worldly relationship that you have. Every person you interact with, every person you talk to should feel different in their engagement with you because of Jesus. So Ephesians lays out here, okay, as as a new creation, as a child of God, here's what things look like. Here's the relationship between husband and wife. Here's the relationship between parent and child. Here's the relationship between employer and employee. Well, Jesus has already done neighbor and enemy. So what's left? You take all the biblical commands and commissions for how we are called to treat one another and you put them together and there's a common singular thread that links them all. It's because of Jesus. The way we love people is because of Jesus. The way we treat people is because of Jesus. The way we value them is because of Jesus. The reason that we consider them ahead of ourselves is because of Jesus. The attitude that we bring into that relationship is because of Jesus. The work that we do, the service, the sacrifice that we make for them is because of Jesus. Because as Philippians tells us, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Nothing. Being made in human likeness and found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And therefore, God gave him a name that is above every name, exalting him to the highest place that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Jesus had all authority, he had all power. And what he did is what he's calling us to do. He doesn't declare, here's what you need to do, he demonstrates it. He left the authority to serve us. He left the comfort of heaven to, take it, to sacrifice for us. He took the initiative and he demonstrated the love that he is now calling us to. He's not saying, go do this because I said so. He's saying, here, I paved the trail. Just follow the example that I set. Because church, the gospel is an intensely, wildly practical thing. It's not just up here. It affects and transforms everything else. And if the gospel is not transforming an area of your life, it is probably because you have not fully surrendered yourself to it. Everything in your life should be different because of Jesus. Especially the way you treat people. First John he says, "Look, if you claim that you love God but you don't love your brother, you're a liar, and the truth of God isn't in you." As if that was a little too gentle, he makes sure to reinforce the point and says, "Anyone who claims to love God but does not love his brother has not seen God or known God." Jesus summarizes it very effectively. Love the Lord, the greatest command of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is summarized in this. The gospel has always been carried on the shoulders of relationships. And there is no greater declaration of who Jesus is, no greater demonstration of the transforming work he is doing in you than in how you treat the people in your life. Are they loved? Are they blessed? Do they find you being in their life a joy because you treat them in a way that nobody else does? Honor and care for them in a way that no one else does. Would the people in your life, those who are there by choice, those who are there because they live or work next to you, do they see you as different because of Jesus? Because the gospel, because Jesus changes everything. He motivates us to treat people different. He motivates us to care for them differently. He sets an example of what that looks like, and then he equips and empowers us to do it. And the call of the Christian life is don't just hear the gospel. Don't just receive the love of Jesus and hold on to it for yourself. You are not called to be a hoarder of the love of God. You are called to be an administer of it. You are called to pour it out. So Jesus flows his love and grace to you in abundance so that you can pour it out into the people of your life. And you go, yeah, but if I give that away, I'm not going to have enough. Absolutely not. You will never out-love and out-grace Jesus. And the more you pour it out, the more he pours it in, and so, the responsibility and commission, the call of all who follow Jesus, is not just to hear and receive the gospel here, it is to live it. And to be the vessel through which the love and grace of Jesus flows. Just as Jesus poured that love and grace through us, into us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for all that you give us. That though you have every right to use the authority that you have to demand, that you've always been the God that demonstrates, that shows us, that leads the way, that you're not pointing and telling us to go, but that you're guiding us one step at a time to follow the example that you set for us. God, I pray that you would convict us of the areas of our life that need to be surrendered to you. I pray that you would encourage us in the areas of our life where we are following you faithfully, that we would fan that flame to an even greater passion. But God, I pray that you would just mold us that you would shape us, that each and every day you would be transforming our lives, that more and more with each breath we take, we long for you and we live for you in all that we do, that we might be faithful examples of your love and your grace, that we might bring glory to you in everything that we say and do. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.